Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Foundation Stage Forum podcast. This week is Early Years Wellbeing Week. And Jules and I are lucky enough to be joined by three esteemed guests, Professor Eunice Lumsden, Kate Moxley and Warder Farrah. I thought it would be a sensible place to start to do some brief introductions in case listeners are unfamiliar with your work. Could you tell us a little bit about your current roles, please? Hi, it's uh, Eunice Lumsden here. I'm Professor of Child Advocacy at the University of Northampton and Head of Childhood, Youth and Families. So my day job is um, advocating for children, obviously, because um, in every every aspect of what I do, um, but I'm also responsible for all the undergraduate programmes in early childhood, working with children, young people and families. Um, education studies and master's programs in infant mental health and well-being and education. Um, so lots and lots of um, wonderful people that I have to work with in my in my team. Thanks, Eunice. Kate? So um, I feel like I've done this before with you. I'm getting deja vu. So yeah, <laughs> um, I am a self-employed early years uh, trainer and um, author adding that in there still getting used to that um author of the um little minds matter book a guide to mental health for early years educator educators i am a mental health first aid england instructor and i uh, live with adhd and dyslexia and share a lived experience of mental health issues and working in the sector um and um and so yeah i'm so excited to be having this conversation as part of earlier's well-being week and so grateful for everybody's time and excited for this conversation so yeah thank you kate and wada Yep. Hi, I'm Warder. Um, so I trained traditionally as a speech and language therapist and then set up a social enterprise called Language Waves, which is all about um, culturally and linguistically sustaining um, interventions for black and marginalised children in my local community. As of two weeks ago, I am now a lecturer at the University of Greenwich on their brand new speech and language therapy course. So that's pretty yeah. exciting. <laughs> that's amazing. Congratulations, Warder. Thank you. So we wanted to open um, this conversation by um, thinking about some of the concepts um, that we want to talk about throughout. And the first one is the concept of intersectionality. And Wardra, I wondered if you could um, explain a bit more what does it mean and why is it important for us to understand? Yeah, um, intersectionality is like a buzzword at the moment. You're hearing it in early years, you're hearing it in like EDI language, in workplaces. Um, but what's really important to remember is it's a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. Um, and it's really about these interwoven, interlocking identities, overlapping identities that we have. We, we belong to multiple groups. And particularly if you're from a marginalized background and you belong to one or more groups, it's really um, interesting to see how systems collude or uh, oppressive systems come together to really impact on your life um, and your kind of existence in this world. So it's really important that we know the genesis of the word, why it was created, who created it, um, but also like in the interest of always um, citing people that have come before us. Kimberly Crenshaw herself was inspired by Sojourner Truth. Um, and Sojourner Truth in the 1800s wrote an essay um, which was called Ain't I a Woman? And that is basically about the dehumanization of black women then and even now. So really, she had to really write this essay and say, ain't I a woman? Um, which is very, it's a very deep thing if we think about it. And then if we link it back to this idea of intersectionality, it's really about us understanding how things come together to oppress us and, and limit our quality of life and our options in life and our existence. But it's, and, and, and sorry, go, sorry, go on. I was just going to do a little bit of signpost and actually award it to the beginner's guide that you've written. It's a free guide and I think it would be a really good starting point. Um, it's called a beginner's guide to intersectionality in the early years and it is um, freely available um, on the Tapestry website. So I definitely recommend if it is a term that you are new to um, that you have a look at that guide because it's a really helpful starting point. Can I just add in that I think it's really important to understand that it's from a feminist perspective as well, and that gives it a really important relevance to early years. And we very rarely 
use that term, but early years is it, one of its distinct characteristics is that it is predominantly female, 98, 90% female um, in all, all positions, and a very low percentage of diverse um, practitioners working in it. Um, so it's a really complex term. And although many of the women in, in working as practitioners may have complex experiences in their own lives that have led them to work in the early years. They haven't necessarily, just if we look at the statistics of the diversity in the workforce, they haven't experienced um, the, the added issues of being a woman and being a black woman or being a brown woman or being a woman from mixed parentage. Um, and intersectionality is a really good model that is predominant, you know, is being used by others now because they and they do forget about its origins um and I, I just think that's really important because i think it highlights some of the real challenges in 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 the earlier sector for um for our youngest children when when the workforce itself hasn't necessarily got all of those ingredients um of experience and 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 haven't explored those Maybe I, might, I don't want to make assumptions, but it's a really complex area. And it was it's something that I studied when I did my MA in women's studies. And it's something that, you know, I was studying it at the time that it, that it first came out. And it had real, real um, resonance with me. It was something and it was around the debates about being women, being women of difference of how that is for black women. Um, because it came, it came from America and understanding those lived experiences. Yeah, and I think what I would add in terms of intersectionality from a perspective of well-being and linking to, to what you've both said, it's as, as a sector dominated by women and a majority of white women then, um, actually it's also understanding that um, black, brown women uh and people of colour, so not just women, also make up the sector in our workspaces, our peers, our colleagues, but also the children and families as well. And so we want to try to understand a person's lived experience. So, you know, like as a, as a white woman, I'm used to people looking like me and the spaces that I occupy, I'm part of like the dominant culture or the majority. And so when we're thinking of it from a perspective of well-being it's understanding how those overlapping and kind of intersections of identity create obstacles or barriers and if we don't lean in to understand or see them that they um, compound and make it more difficult so um, you know many people try to hide aspects of their identity to fit into places but actually what we're talking about here is you know actually some people cannot hide parts of their identity and who they are um and and so we have to understand uh, those intersections and how i suppose they um bring about you know all of who we are and often in our workplaces we aren't considering those factors and when we want to understand one another and we think about well-being as a thread that weaves its way through every aspect of our workplace we also lean into the conversation that intersectionality can come from um, a celebratory approach to understand and connect with each other because if I'm able to share and people around me understand all of who I am then people I work with people in the spaces that I occupy they kind of benefit then from um, all aspects of uh, my skills and my strengths and my talent so again rather than focusing on um you know, just the barriers and the um, inequity, um, leaning into really trying to make a difference within our workplace, you know, especially um, to connect to one another, to um, cultivate belonging and inclusion. Um, and so I think that's uh, like just so interesting, bringing all of that together, understanding feminism and yeah, exactly the um, origins of intersectionality from, from Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and so as women, um, as mothers, we're still 
not everyone um, has to be a mother or wants to be a mother, but if the workforce is dominated by women who are often mothers, we are working in a caregiving role and we are then also taking the mental and emotional load at home. And that is huge and that's significant. And they're things we really need to better understand about one another to connect us. Okay. Um, I think uh, you mentioned there just towards the end, the sort of concept of belonging. Um, Eunice, I wonder if you could sort of expand on that a little bit and uh, and maybe what it means, I suppose, as a term belonging uh, and, and then how that links to intersectionality and well-being. Hey, I think oh, belonging is such a, a beautiful word and it's something that I don't think we're always as, as we always explore and think about, but we all whole life we need relationships and we need that we we need to feel that we belong to groups we belong somewhere um and it's really hard for some people because they don't necessarily feel they belong um and and how we we do that so belonging to me is is one of the most crucial and important things in life and it comes through forming relationships and it comes through forming relationships that affirm us as people um, and trying to not have the relationships with people that don't affirm us. Um, so feeling part of, of, of belonging. And, and it's personally important to me because I grew up in Birmingham at a time where I didn't belong, didn't fit in. Um, so, Kate, you'll find this quite interesting in the sense because you you know, where you're located, was that my family was one of the very first probably mixed families in Birmingham in the late 50s and 60s. Um, although the, it, Birmingham is very different now, it wasn't then. I was usually the only person in the classroom. I'm different to my sister because my sister didn't have those same issues because she, for all, for every purpose, looked as if she was a part of the dominant culture, whereas I didn't understand and didn't understand and not, you know, it's taken me decades to understand why I didn't make relationships, why I wasn't invited to parties, why people didn't want to do, do those things. And there were people that looked like me. And it wasn't really until I went to Sri Lanka and not until my 30s that I actually saw people that looked like me and understood my my traits that come from my family that I've never met. Um, and so belonging has been something that's really, um, really been core to me, to how I am with other people, if that makes sense. So that, you know, I, I, I always believe it's really important people are greeted at the station, they know where they're going, they they know when they've got there, they know where the coffee is, the toilets are, etc. And that's what we're doing. You know, it's Welcome Week in universities that this week, and that's what we're doing. Um, so my whole interest in belonging comes from the fact that I've always worked in the margins of society with marginalised groups of people who are made to feel that they don't belong. And I'll give an example from early years if that helps here. So recently I've been doing some research um, around with, with parents around um, experiences of services. And one of the parents said that they felt, they didn't feel that the setting they were used, using was right for their child. Couldn't put a reason to it. And one day she went to the nursery at the same time as another parent had been greeted by their key person. But the key person ignored her child and acknowledged and valued how the other child was looking yeah, and ignored the other child who both were arriving at the same time. And that sort of brought it together for that parent that my child doesn't belong here because he's not seen. He was an Eastern European child and the other child was white English. And it was how she made felt she didn't feel that they belonged. And this experience reinforced the fact that her child didn't belong in this setting, if that's helpful. Um, because whether that was conscious or not, because a lot of things are done unconsciously, that child, 
did not have the same equity of experience when entering into that setting. And that just affirmed how the mother felt or the parent felt around their belonging in, in that setting. Yeah. Right, I'm thinking that was a comment about the appearance of the child in question who was... Uh... <laughs> Sorry, it, it was... It was just a feeling. It's it, it's really really hard, and it's so hard. Belonging is such a complex thing that the, it's often the non-verbal communication that lets you know whether you belong or not. And one of the things that within early years practice maybe that we don't do as as much of, and that we should do because so much of communication is non-verbal is be really working on your own reflection of how others see you, which fits with our earlier discussions around listening to ourselves. Yeah. That, yeah. that you have to, when you train as a social worker, you do a lot of work where you're looking about how others perceive you, how you're coming over, you're thinking about nonverbal communication. And it's crucial in early childhood to understand nonverbal communication, but we can... People can have words coming out of their mouth, but the body language tells us something different. Yeah. And we have to be conscious of that. Children pick those up, they're sponges. Absolutely. I always, how I describe it is um, the opposite of, of fitting, uh, the opposite of belonging is trying to fit in. And maybe all of us can acknowledge at some point trying to fit in somewhere will be accepted in whatever form that is. And when we're trying to fit in somewhere, we're usually trying to change some aspect of ourselves. We're trying to be liked or deemed more worthy or more clever or whatever um, it might be. And so, um, you know, like we talked about Birmingham and my accent like I can't change my accent and as soon as I open my mouth people make an assumption or a judgment or they have a an opinion or a feeling about it and like I've tried to change it at some points in my life and I'm probably using my poshest version of it today but um actually um I am really proud to be from Birmingham and I have like, you know, I hope a sense of humor be really like I think we're really down to earth as people but um Ultimately, it's it's bringing that into a, a conversation um, when I'm talking to people that a Birmingham accent's voted the worst regional dialect in the whole country, the least trustworthy. Recently, also the most sexiest. People can't believe that one, but I mean, it's obvious. But the point here is that we have to care about the way our, our identity makes us different. And then in our settings, not just for children and families, in, in the way that you've described that's so important, um, Eunice, it's also for ourselves as adults, as educators, as peers, how we're making adjustments that include and celebrate our differences. Um, because um, if, you know, going to work and developing relationships with people, especially as caregivers, I need to trust that the people around me are going to do the right thing by me, that I feel psychologically safe as an educator. So I can care for, you know, the children that are, are coming into this space. So, um, you know, that sense of belonging, um, you know, and thinking about how, you know, again, just weaving its way back to, um, our self-esteem, our sense of self-worth, um, you know, how we feel, how we feel accepted, because I suppose the most easiest definition of well-being is how happy, healthy and comfortable I feel, how happy, healthy, healthy and comfortable I am physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And that obviously is a, is a huge part of that conversation around belonging. I think... I think what you both um, individually say is really interesting. So for me and my identity of, um, you know, firstly being a black woman, I feel hyper visible. So, you know, there's there's the aspects of racism and, and, and misogyny that come with that. But then equally being autistic, neurodivergent, um, ADHD, et cetera, it's, that's, that's kind of like an invisibility as well. And so my, I would kind of describe my life as a quest for belonging. Um, and it's taken me quite a while to realise that actually it's what you said, Kate, about being comfortable. So I'm comfortable with myself now, which has kind of taken away that need yeah. to 
belong because there are you know it's just um you think you belong and you, and you don't and and it's just it might sound like a negative thing but there is an aspect of kind of feeling comfortable with being who you are even if you're in spaces where you don't belong um and that has really helped me um become more confident and and happy in who I am because it doesn't matter where I am I'm I know me and I'm okay with me and if I don't fit in with you that's that's cool um but it but it takes them while but then there is also the aspect of what you say about forming relationships it's really important for us to to form relationships and so you know that 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 is a bit of a thing to balance but for me I have key people in my life that I have great relationships with and they fill me up so because I have that sense of belonging in that way in the relationships I've formed I'm not interested whether I belong in that space or this space or that space I know you know who is for me etc thank you Wadra it's so powerful to get all your personal reflections on that word um, and your personal experiences it's uh, yeah and it's it's obviously such an important thing for us to be thinking about with our children and, and uh, our colleagues and our team members um, I wanted to just talk about um, literacy next and around sort of racial literacy and mental health literacy um what did you have any examples of um i suppose racial literacy and why is it important that we develop our literacy as educators well quite interestingly um racial literacy is something that i'm getting to grips now because when i was growing up my parents never talked to me about race um so my parents are immigrants so when they came here they just wanted to do well and keep their head down and so there was never really much discussion about um my race or anything like that being a barrier to anything because they really they believed in meritocracy because back home (laughs) everyone looked like them so they thought that when they came here I would replicate in the same way so it's only in the last recent years where I'm thinking about my identity who I am and, and and all those things that I've thought about racial literacy um but I don't know too much about it to be honest okay well no I mean I just Okay. Um, and and Kate, around, I know you talk about mental health literacy and sort of, I suppose, as educators, whether it be racial literacy or, or mental health literacy, the importance of, of us striving to have a better understanding of it, I suppose, wherever we are on our journeys. Um, do you have any examples in terms of mental health literacy and, and why it's important? But I suppose, it, you know, it's so interesting to think about um, the differences around, I suppose, our words, um, our languages, the phrases, the, the nuance of language and what we mean when we say something because different things mean different things to obviously different people. And so when I'm delivering training or having conversations around mental health and increasing mental health literacy, it's really interesting that still so many people when they say mental health they they describe it or believe it to be mental ill health and they don't class themselves as someone who might experience poor mental health and so it is that definition that we all have mental health like we do have physical health and when we're thinking of mental health literacy it's about how to achieve and maintain positive mental health for ourselves um and understand it in other people um and, and be aware and understand poor mental health. And that isn't about living without um, a diagnosis of a mental health condition. And, and it's understanding you know, those different aspects to it because mental health literacy, like by definition, it's um, trying to um, be able to uh, recognize specific um, types of distress or signs of poor mental health in another person, but it's also having a knowledge and belief around risk factors that could lead to poor mental health, why people might be more vulnerable or more susceptible to developing poor mental health. Um, also, the ability to um, seek um, or accept self-help intervention so that helps seeking behaviour and many of us again we don't want people to view us in a certain type of way so we're not someone that might experience poor mental health so it kind of is very difficult um, to um, 
when you're trying to speak with educators specifically because there's so much stigma I think that exists around mental health and working with children so it's really trying to change and shift attitudes and I suppose facilitate that recognition around uh, mental health um, that you know we might all experience poor mental health at some point in our life and so what pathways what support is available in our community within our workplace knowing that we might all need it um, because all of these things have the potential to empower our workplace communities to protect and promote positive mental health but also importantly to intervene um, mm. if mental health issues are developing or worsening um, and then if we add in cultural considerations or we add in identity as part of conversations around mental health, you know, for uh, for men, it is a very different conversation around feelings and emotions because often they won't have been socialised to feel and express their emotions. So they're more likely to uh, keep feelings to themselves, not discuss um, things that are bothering them and um, self-medicate, um, whether it's food or alcohol or consuming something as a way of dealing with that. Um, but also the words mental health sometimes don't translate into another language. Mental health can be thought of as something that's um, I don't know, a possession of evil, something that is, um, um, you know, something to be feared or be afraid of. So in other countries, cultures, religions around the world, there's an increased stigma attached to it. So when we're talking about it, it depends who we're talking about it with and where we're talking about it and how it's affecting us and our people and those people that we're connected to, to understand any negative assumptions or unfair beliefs we might hold about it and um, that we might hold around mental health so um it's such a huge subject to kind of start to talk about i wonder if i could sort of add something in there um i think it's really important that we're talking about early practice in early childhood and if people choose to work with children then they have a professional responsibility to ensure that they're the best professional they can back or practitioner at any one time. And therefore, if you're responsible for the um, early learning experiences of our young children, then comes with that a huge responsibility to make sure you are that best person. And so understanding the terms, keeping abreast of the changes in contemporary language are really important because it, it's often the same things that have been discussed for decades that come around in a different rep, um, wrapping. So racial literacy, like mental health literacy, um, are around trying to understand the world through other people's eyes. And so that they're around understanding and not necessarily always having to know the minutiae detail of children and families' lives, but understanding that if you're if your community and your community of your setting and your, or your you know, your childminder, um, that, that, that things aren't invisible. So that we know that having a new baby is traumatic and complex. And so if you've got a parent that's pregnant and got a child or just had the baby, you know that that's really stressful. You know, however much we'd like to not talk about it, we know that if we ignore the racial dynamics in a setting, if we ignore the fact that the staff maybe don't reflect the children, then we do a disservice to those children and we do a disservice to those children's development. So it is really understanding, you know, however it is, it's understanding the world through the different eyes um, and that. You know, it is not invisible. It's not an elephant in the room, as the saying goes, that isn't spoken about. It's acknowledged um, and, and visible rather than invisible. Thank you, Eunice. We've, we've kind of been moving through in this conversation, sort of talking about the foundations and the understanding of these concepts and the literacy behind them. And I wondered now, Eunice, I wanted to ask you first about sort of what does that look like? What actions, what practical tools and steps can we take? Right. Okay, so I always start with the fact there are no quick fixes. This isn't a tick box thing. This is an ongoing lifetime thing. And that you look at it with different eyes at different ages and stages in in your life and at different stage, ages and stages um, of your education and different ages and stages in your career. 
because you have different experiences. So um, the really interesting, I've, I've just been doing some life laundry because I've had to, about my MA stuff where I was writing about women of difference and women, black women of difference in 1994. Um, and my my first degree back in 1978 to 82, where I was picking up women and women's issues and poverty and things like that. But I'm looking at them now through different, different eyes um, because I have a lot more practice wisdom, a lot more practice experience in, in life. Um, and so the most important thing is there is no quick fix, isn't that you have to look at yourself in the mirror first. You actually have to ask yourself the questions, what do I actually think about this, this and this? What, what am I bringing into the room? What baggage am I bringing into this relationship? So for example, uh, if we think about the background experiences of some practitioners that we know that people are drawn to work with young children um, because of their own traumatic, they might have experienced of domestic violence, drug abuse as a child, child abuse and things like that. That doesn't mean to say they can't work in early childhood with children, it isn't a bar. It's actually can be a really benefit, but you actually have to work on it. It's not something that goes away. You have to work at it at different ages and stages in your life when things, things come up for you. So there's a personal responsibility in all of that. There is no quick fix. There is no revision guide. Uh, you know, increasingly young young people have been brought up with a revision guide that they're given for GCSEs and A levels, or you know, quick fixes. There is nothing about this. This is about personal reflection, personal development first, actually acknowledging what you really think about issues. And so, when I developed the tool of the Mandela model, um, that was drawing, as you know, on the work of uh, Prosper Tedham, who had done it through the experiences of social black social workers in the supervision session in social work. And I thought, that's good early years needs, but actually it was never the right terming and, and it's still an issue. So what it's turned out, how I've, I've interpreted it is much more of a, a framework and a tool to enable the quality, the conversations. It's a third object that is about um, looking looking at um, these issues, identifying your own development and training needs and identifying that this might be painful, um, identifying, um, you know, some of the, the, the ways that you think about things at the time that you're thinking about what's influenced those decisions. So, if you think about books, if we just simply look at books, so if you were using the Mandela tool, you're finding time to actually look at the books in your setting, okay, and the nature of the books. Often when we see books about feelings or we talk about feelings, we describe anger as red, don't we, and, and things like that. But things that aren't nice, we describe as black. And there are many a story out there where the feelings are described as black. Now, if you're a child in a setting, you've got no experience of, you know, you're, you're, that's your environment. You're hearing stories that black is bad. One, if you're a black child, how does that make that feel about you? And secondly, if you're a white child and you then first come along your, your first black person, yeah, then what do you think about that person? Do you think they're bad? And so people don't necessarily look that deep. You know, I'm not, you can never make judgments because there are amazing practitioners out there. But we, I talk about tilting the diamond and that's what the Mandela model is about. It's about tilting your diamond and how you see the world and providing a proactive, positive framework that I hope is safe, that I hope people will use, but not see as something that hits their key performance indicator um, on, on anything, that they see it as a tool to enhance their practice and then that in, in, enhancing themselves and the practice of their settings, whatever that might be, then enhancing enhancing the experience of children. And, uh, I mean, it's only been out a few weeks, but um, I already know how well it's been received. There's been so many positive comments about your work. And um, again, just to signpost that Mandela um, workbook is um, available freely to download and interact with. Um, again on the tapestry website so um yeah have a look on there it's uh yeah i think it's a uh, it's going to be a very powerful resource for earlier settings and 
as well, I think schools, um, from my experience, specialist schools, I think could benefit massively from using it. Thank um, you. Kate, just uh, wanted to touch on um, the role of a leader and it sort of links to what Eunice has been saying, but um, what is the role of a leader, would you say, in cultivating well-being? Well, it's really interesting uh, hearing Eunice there speaking um, um, around um, reflecting on, I suppose, your own values and beliefs and thinking about different ages, well, different stages and and um, of your own life and things that you've experienced and encountered. Um, so as a leader, as an educator, sometimes, you know, reflecting and thinking about what we're sometimes expecting as leaders or managers from younger educators is stuff that we've learned, you know, um, at different stages and places of our life. And sometimes we expect ourselves from other people or we are expecting things from people who, you know, actually it, it's not suitable or it's not appropriate. But also I think as a sector, sometimes as a there can be, I think as a sector, we can be marginalised, we can be undervalued. Um, and thinking about the way in which um, we value ourselves and, and um, have high self-esteem and sense of self-worth, not just for our profession, but for ourselves. And so picking up on what Eunice was saying about like, why am I here and why do I do this role? So why do I choose to work in the workplace that I am bringing my skills and my knowledge and my, my talent to? Because I was taught as a, you know, when I left school and did my training, I should just be grateful to have a job. But actually what we're, and what I'm trying to celebrate is why am I choosing to work in this environment? Do my views, do my beliefs, do they align with the pedagogy and the practice and the ethos and the vision we hold with children in mind? And if they don't, then this can't be the right space for me, you know? And so as a leader and as a, a manager, it's understanding that the role is ever increasingly a high stress load. There's a lot of pressure. And so we are vulnerable to experiencing, you know, exhaustion and burnout and compassion fatigue. And so for my own self, no one ever taught me to think about my well-being or my health. Um, you know, I it was almost like you take it for granted until um, you have then gone through an experience where you you realise that you're not immune or you're not invincible. And actually, um, you know, things have been harder in lots of ways than you realise. And I think the point I'm trying to hopefully eventually get to is that... Um, we have never been taught to think about our well-being in the way that we're thinking about it now. And whilst mental health is spoken about more widely, there is still a lack of understanding. And from the work that I am doing nationally um, with educators in settings, in actually in different sectors, what I'm seeing is still the ripple effect of COVID. And it's no longer a silent emergency. It's quite obvious that people are struggling. People are burnt out and exhausted. And people are leaving the profession um, in their droves because of the responsibility and the toll that it takes over time. So if we want educators to join the sector and stay and have longevity, it's about celebrating health and well-being um, from a place of them being human beings that have a life outside of work and I want to protect their energy I want to promote their well-being um, I want to prevent any job stressors how as a leader and a manager am I protecting all of those things to maintain and promote health so that um, people want to stay in this workplace so that I get to come to work and feel psychologically safe healthy happy and supported at work to do you know, the job role. And so part of that is that those individual steps I need as a human, but also collectively, that collectivism, um, you know, is so important as a community of care. I want to go to work and I deserve to work in a space where people care about me, where, where we've got each other's backs um, and we want to thrive here, not just survive. So this is really firmly not just about being a better educator, being more productive, more present in our job. It's being more present in our own lives, for our own children, our own families, for our, our own joy, um, you know, to flourish and feel happy and well. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Okay. I wanted to ask 
now about activism and I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been reading uh, things you've all written and listened to you speaking and I noticed that a lot of the words that can be used around early years are often the words of activism so I picked some out so like challenge speak up tear down children's rights advocate recognition it's all kind of the language of social justice and activism and that really sparks something when I hear it and I just wanted to ask, and I was going to start with Warder, um, what can activism, activism look like for early years educators? So I'm a big pro proponent of saying that activism isn't always having a placard, placard and going out shouting on the streets and doing those kind of visible things that we associate with activism. Sometimes they can be very small acts of resistance, such as thinking. <laughs> thinking and, and 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 reflecting choosing to speak up when we feel or or feel like we've seen an injustice something as simple as that is activism and I think a lot of people do it every day um so that's really important to reflect on but it is this kind of idea of speaking truth to power speaking up um kind of being or trying because we're all trying, trying to be a person whose ethics, values, integrities, you know, aligns. Um, and sometimes that can be really difficult to do. But I, I really do think that an activist is somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about the world they live in and thinking about ways to make it better. And it's not always, you know, what we associate it with. There are many activists that I've known in my life that have never, nobody knows their name, but they've done a lot to change society. So it's really um, important that we reflect on that. And it's really important that we, if there are people in our communities or societies that do advocate for change to happen, that we also support them because it's a very difficult um thing on your mental health and well-being for people to see you as an activist and, and come to you all the time whenever something's going on because they think oh you know so and so will help me or so and so knows what to do um so it's really important that we reflect and are empathetic and um, show care to the people in our communities that do turn up and, and and speak up because it's not always to to do so and I think even for me if I hark it back to some of the work that I'm doing um you know I've been reported to the health professional councils purely because I speak about racism in speech and language therapy so th there is also that other aspect to think about about how you may be penalized in society if you continue to do this work um but that shouldn't deter you yeah I know your work Okay, I was just going to say uh, that Warder's work is, I know it's empowering so many people um, to to find that voice and to to show that resistance. And I know sort of from experience that um, working with therapists or uh, health professionals that they were the experts and I just absorbed what they told me and I went ahead and and, and did that in the classroom, you know. And, and I know if I had uh, encountered someone like Warder 15 years ago, my path through... Um, the classroom in those coming years may have been different because I think I would have been more likely to sort of, um, yeah, feel empowered to, to to challenge a bit more and to to think that it, it is okay to challenge and, and and think of appropriate and respectful ways to do so. And um, I think it's so important that we can, uh, yeah, find our voices. Sorry, Kate. I wonder if I could come in there and say I have a slightly different lens in it in terms of of um activism for me is is also around the fact when i trained as a social worker and understanding social work is that you work in an active space because that's what you're doing you're you're obviously working with people that haven't had you know very complex life experiences and you advocate for them and, and what have you and it, that that is really important now and there's a very strong relationship between politics and policy. That strong relationship absolutely is there in early childhood, and early childhood is wed to politics. But that is a really difficult for people to understand that every interaction with a child is wed to policy and wed to politics that we do. Every interaction makes a difference. But those interactions are happening within a political and a policy landscape and a political ideology that makes that happen. 
Um, and that is the growth area that has to happen for me in early childhood that comes through workforce development, comes through raising qualifications, raising status, raising value, self-esteem, and having a code of practice. Um, because um, there isn't a code of practice. People in the sector can't get struck off, as, as Warder could do or I could do as a social worker, um, because of, 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 of practice. And one of the things that I do is I keep myself registered as a social worker because it does hold me to account. Now, early childhood, we were on a pathway to develop a, a really strong profession. And, and very sadly, that, that hasn't happened. And actually what, what seems to be happening is the, the, the qualification requirements are being a bit eroded and there's lots of conversations about that because of the challenges. But if you work in early childhood, it is wed to politics. You're putting into practice what the government of the time says you have to do. And you have to understand that. However, we know that that's really very, very complex because of the ongoing, the you know, the lack of ongoing training and opportunities that allow that space where people can address those issues of, of social injustice, um, and that has at some point got to happen. And those that. Um, and if you, those foundation degree students that I've worked with over the years that are in practice, there's so many of them that, that get it because it's their lived experience as well. Yeah. And having a space where they meet with predominantly other women, where they begin to realise that. But that's then complex because they realise that their lived experiences, some of their lived experiences, because they pay, because they need to and all of those things just to live um, makes it such a complex space for people to explore and I hope that that sort of gives a slightly different lens but we know that early childhood is so politically charged and that is often invisible in so many things as people are learning how to observe and things like that that yeah, it's really complex for me because if you're working with the least, the most vulnerable in the community, those that can't communicate for themselves, can't argue for themselves, then activism is core to that role, is core. Arguing, please, can I have some more resources for this child? That is activism within within the setting. Being, you know, having to and, and Stephen, when you worked in special needs, you know that you had to fight, fight for resources for children that had a right to those those bits. So actually, activism is is so embedded in the United Nations Convention of the Rights of Children and all of those those issues. And they're things that sometimes that we don't have the time to really truly explore in early childhood to the level and the depth that we need. So yeah, we're going on a bit. Thank you, Eunice. Um, no, you're, you're so right. Um, and uh, yeah, it's so important that we develop that activism in ourselves as educators. Um, it's been so interesting to hear all your reflections and thoughts on, on this theme. I, I wondered if we could sort of finish with Kate, just tell us a little bit more about Early Years Wellbeing Week and, and how we can get involved. Absolutely. I wanted to add something about activism, if I can. Um, of course. And I, I, I would echo... Um, what uh water said around um uh i suppose it, it isn't about the loudest voices it is actually sometimes the the silent um actions it is the the boundaries we put in place it is protecting our health and well-being it is um lots of little maybe small actions that add up to, to big actions and how actually as a sector we can galvanise um, our potential to make our voices heard and actually linking them to what Eunice was saying about politics because that makes people feel uncomfortable so often. Oh, no, um, you know, I, I don't want to talk about politics, don't get political, but actually our sector needs to understand so much of the 
the risk factors, those issues that are affecting us in our day-to-day setting, affecting the quality of the care that we're providing, the reason staff are leaving and settings are closing is because of those outside factors. And organisations such as yourself and also um, you know, Pacey and the Early Years Alliance and the NDNA, they are trying to galvanise and link up that p- partnership between parents and settings to understand what is happening on a, on, I suppose, a national political picture so that we can um, make our voices heard. We can join unions and uh, professional agencies to understand how our voices matter. And then that is affecting directly what's happening inside our settings. And I think that previously what we were talking about with Warder around um, the work that she does, um, I had um, done some reading and, and, and looking up the work of both Warder and Unis before today. And I was so moved by um, the blog that was written about ancestral storytelling as a portal of possibility. And, you know, as an educator who left school with no qualifications, I that, that shame, that stigma of being someone that didn't have what it took um, to go into a profession that was valued or recognised, um, you know, that that thought of me as a person, my thoughts, my beliefs, my work is not good enough. It's not valued. And so thinking that there's one set view of of um, teaching, of academics, of belonging, um, you know, our sector is made up of many people just like me who went on to gain qualifications, a degree, who has a lived experience that is just as relevant as um, you know, many, many different um, qualifications. And so that um, glimmer of hope that Water talks about in terms of, I suppose, standard ideology is really important for us to kind of embrace and understand here, because again, it all comes back to, um, you know, belonging and feeling as though I matter. And, and all of that um, is part of our self-esteem, our self-worth and who I am as a, a human being. Like, and so, I can only stand up for things I believe in if I've got that, if I've gone through that process of knowing who I am and what I believe in and what matters to me. And so if my views and my values um, and that integrity, if that means a lot to me, but my words and my actions don't match up with that, then like there's a mismatch somewhere and something's going wrong. And 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 it's really important that we have this conversation. It's been so exciting to kind of lean into it and learn more from each other about what it means to work in education and look after children and take care of ourselves at the same time. Thank you, Kate. And uh, would you be able to tell us the link for uh, the website that you have for Early Years Wellbeing Week so people can visit and and find out a little bit more? So Early Years Wellbeing Week is the 9th to the 15th of October. It's in line with World Mental Health Day. It's our sixth year this year. Um, And so you can uh, take a little look at the website, which um, is um, earlyearswellbeingweek.org.uk and take part um, in um, the resources that are on there. Obviously, this podcast, lots of other things that come out as part of the week so that we are really... Um, you know, raising awareness to promote and protect educator well-being, um, as we've said, and, and continue this conversation to increase mental health literacy. Thank you, Kate, Eunice and Warder for joining us today. It's been fascinating to hear um, your views and especially um, your personal experiences. Um, yeah, have brought so much value to the conversation. So thank you for your honesty and uh, your bravery in talking about um some of the challenges you've faced. Uh, Thank you very much, and we'll see you on the podcast next time.